Well, all right. Open your Bibles, if you would, to this um, relatively short but powerful passage that Joe just read for us. We're in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Now, I actually want to put you in the frame of reference for this passage by playing a little game with you this morning, okay? Maybe it's because I'm wearing the green t-shirt. I'm in a can't mood. Uh, here's how the game's going to work. I'm going to put an image on the screen, and uh, this isn't designed to be real difficult. I just want you to shout out what that image is, all right? So here's image number one. Trash can. Wrong. Wrong. It only looks like a trash can. It's actually a piece of modern art by the modern artist Paul Blanca. And in 2014, he had a display in an art gallery in Italy. And the custodian came at night and she said, well, this is exactly what you said it was. And she threw it in the dumpster. And there goes an art piece valued at, ready for this, $15,000. Now, I have no idea how that's $15,000, but that's what the, the insurance claimed that they filed with it, right? All right, let's try image number two. This is... A ring, that's exactly right. What kind of ring? An engagement ring. You would be incorrect, sir, unless you're extremely cheap. This is $6.99 online. It's really more of a party token than it is a ring. In fact, you can buy it in bulk, right, for your next little you know, 12-year-old princess party. Uh, believe it or not, that's actually what this is. It's a party token, not an engagement ring. Uh, let's do another image. Now, what is this? All right, now you've a TV. Okay, so you know you're going to be wrong because that's the pattern so far. This, this, this one actually is a TV. <laughs> it is a TV. Now, it is a TV and was a TV, just a TV, until about 30 years ago, a man from Canada decided to use it as a safe, and he put a box with $100,000 cash into the TV. Now, the problem was, I don't know how this happened, but he forgot about it. And years later, he's looking around. It's like, oh, I got this fancy flat screen now. So he gives that old TV away to a friend. That friend uses it for a little while, never knowing how generous his friend had been to give him this $100,000 TV. And then that friend eventually gave it to a recycling center. And when they took it apart, they found the $100,000. So this, and it turns out they were able to trace it back to the guy because he had a note with it. And this man had intended this to be the inheritance for his family. And I'm thinking, Grandpa, how do you forget and <laughs> put this in a TV? So here's the moral from all these stories. It's very important that you correctly identify an object, right? It could be thousands of dollars on the line if you misidentify. Now, this is exactly what's happening in our text that Joe read for us a minute ago. Here's what Jesus is doing. In fact, let's show one more image on the screen. Jesus is saying, disciples, look at me. Who do you say that I am? Because your answer really matters. <laughs> Who do you say that I am? And what's wonderful about this passage is the application jumps off the page. This is a question not just for them. This is a question for us. Some of you have answered this question, but you need to take a closer look this morning of what it actually means to say Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. 
Some of you actually have never answered this question. You think you have, but you've never asked this question. Who do you say that he is? And that's where this text is going to take us this morning. Now, I want to give some context before we actually jump in to verse 27. Michael set us up really well last week, because if you remember uh, the narrative from last week, I know not all of you were here, but most of you were, uh, there, there was this healing of the blind man that happened right before our text today. And what's interesting about the healing of this blind man was the healing of the blind man came immediately after Jesus telling the disciples that they had eyes, but they could not see. And then lo and behold, who do they encounter? A man who had eyes but could not see. And what's interesting about the healing of this blind man was it happened in two stages, if you recall. Jesus touches him, and now his eyes are open and he can see. The problem is he's not seeing clearly. And so he he says, "I, I see trees like people walking around. I don't even know what that means, except maybe it's like a, a prophecy for Tolkien to write the Lord of the Rings later on with the trees. Well, I don't know. But, but that's what he says. So he obviously is not seeing clearly. So Jesus touches his eyes again, and now he can see everything clearly. And so the attentive reader is saying, maybe this is what's happening with the disciples in their hard-heartedness, their eyes that do not see, their ears that do not hear. Maybe Jesus is healing them progressively. They're getting closer and closer to the final touch that will enable them to actually see who he really is. And we get to that text this morning. Their eyes are now fully opened. But what opens their eyes? What's the final touch that Jesus gives them? A question. Who do you say that I am? And now they can no longer dance around this most important issue. It's pointed right at them. They have to answer it. And of course, Peter does, and he speaks for the disciples, and he gets the answer right. But before we get to that part, let's back up to 27. So I'm just going to read this a verse at a time and give some commentary around it, then we'll apply it to our lives. Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now let me pause there for just a minute. This is about 25 miles north from where they had been. This is at the very northern, near the northern border of Israel. Um, Mount Hermon is up there close to where they were. Also the, uh, the spring, that's the origin point for the Jordan River, which flows all the way north-south you know, through the nation. This is the context of where they were. It's isolated from most other Jewish people. There weren't a whole lot of Jews in this region at that time. Jesus needs to get away from the crowds. He needs to engage with the disciples one-on-one. And on the way, the verse continues, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? So think about this as a first century road trip, in a way. Jesus is in his disciples, right? They got, you know, I don't know, whatever psalms they're singing, which is their road trip mixtape, and they're heading up, and great conversation usually happens at road trip. You just, you're together, face to face, you're walking along, and Jesus asks this question, who do people say that I am? Now, he asks this question to set up the real question, which is who do you say that I am? But notice he first sort of like prepares them. I, I imagine Jesus as almost this archer that knows his target and and he's just sort of like seeding arrows around the center before he goes for the heart and so this is what he's doing who do people say that i am now the the answer they give is interesting look at 28 they told him saying john the baptist others say elijah but others one of the prophets Now, all these are wrong, right? But I want you to see something. Every one of these answers essentially is your your, your prophet, Jesus. Who was Elijah? A prophet. Who was John the Baptist? A prophet. 
or, or and so they're essentially saying some people think you're one of these great prophets sort of reincarnated and remember John the Baptist had just died and Herod actually said I think Jesus is is John the Baptist that's like back as a ghost almost to come in and spook me because I killed John the Baptist that was Herod's perspective apparently other people thought that too others said Elijah another great prophet now the reason Elijah was significant was according to prophecy Elijah was going to come again before Messiah. Now Jesus will later explain to his disciples that Elijah, if you're willing to hear it, was actually John the Baptist. So they're kind of on the right track of Messiah's coming, but no one had really identified him yet as Messiah, except, by the way, the demons. But no human yet up to this point had identified him with Messiah. And then this other one, one of the prophets was just, well, if you're not John the Baptist, if you're not Elijah, you're a new prophet and you're, you're something important. We've seen you do these miracles. But no one had yet gone out there and said, you are Messiah until Peter's about to say it. Verse, uh, let's keep going, 29. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ and he warned them to tell no one about him. By the way, we'll come back to verse 30 later. Why did he warn them to tell no one about them? We'll come back to that. Where I want to camp out on is what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? Like, what did it mean to the Jews? What did it mean for Peter? Because this was a really big deal for Peter to proclaim that his friend Jesus was actually the Christ. Um, years ago, when I was at Dallas Seminary, I was leading a Bible study of these couples that had just come to faith, and I was teaching them some of the basics about the faith, and, and I got a question that I wasn't prepared for, and one of the guys said, hey, so like, I assume that like, Joseph and Mary's last name was Christ, you know, because Jesus Christ, so it was Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, and, and I, I, I laughed, and then I like stepped back and said, well, why wouldn't he think that, right? Jesus Christ, that's his last name. Not his last name. That's his title. Christ is a title. Christ is Messiah. So Christ, Christos, is a Greek word. Messiah is a Hebrew word. They mean the same thing. So when you hear Jesus Christ, someone's saying Jesus Messiah. They're actually proclaiming his true title. Now, most people say that, and they don't actually mean it. They don't even know what it means for him to be Messiah. And if they did, they certainly wouldn't call him that. So next time you hear Jesus Christ, like, hey, yeah, do you know actually what that means for him to be the Christ? Now, what did it mean in this context for Jesus to be the Christ? This is where it gets fascinating. And this is where we've got to do a little bit of um, historical and political work. And I know for some of you, like, that's not your bag. And that's cool. I'll make it as engaging as I can. So let's dig into this. I want to give you some context of what it meant for Peter to say, you are Messiah. First of all, Christ, Messiah, they both mean anointed one. Now, that's not enough by itself. You have to understand the context. There had been prophecies for hundreds of years that there would one day be a one who would come that would reign in the throne of David forever. He would reestablish Israel to be the nation that God intended it to be with you know, wealth and, and blessing and secure borders and all these kinds of things. Now, for them to say Messiah is coming was remarkable because they were so far away from that reality as what you could imagine. So literally, this is a part you need to understand. It had been 
a thousand years since Israel was doing well. A thousand years since they had secure borders and wealth and blessing. In fact, it had been since the reign of Solomon. So the golden age of Jewish history, of, of, of the history of the nation of Israel was in the reign of Solomon. So David was a good age, but then David kind of led into Solomon. Under Solomon's age, this was the wealth. This was, this was the, 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 the climax of Israel's power and authority and blessing. And what happens after Solomon dies, the nation splits into two. There's a little bit of a civil war. Now you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So right there, they're on the decline. Not too long after that, the northern kingdom of Israel is wiped away by the powerful Assyrian empire and you just have Judah. And by the way, Israel never comes back. The northern kingdom, they're gone. They're just gone. So you have this tiny little, just a couple of tribes down here in the south. Jerusalem is a part of this. It's the nation of Judah now. And they last a little bit longer, but then they're wiped away by the Babylonians. So you have the Assyrians that come, take out the north. Babylonians that come, take out the south. Babylonians are then conquered later by the Persians. The Persians say, what are we going to do with all these Jewish people that are here? Why don't we let them go back to their homeland? But they didn't get to reestablish a strong, powerful nation. They were still under the rule of the Persians. And it wasn't even really anything that was very organized. This is where you have Nehemiah. This is where you have Ezra. I mean, we've studied these things before. They rebuild the temple in a sense. They rebuild the walls in a sense. But it's not really a nation like we would think of a nation. Think of it this way. The Jewish people all through these different empires... We're like a, a little tumbleweed that's just kind of blowing around by the winds. You got the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. After the Persians came the Greeks and Alexander the Great, and they conquered the whole area. Then after the Greeks, you have the Romans. Greatest, most powerful empire ever. And so you, here you have this, this people group, the Jews, never got their nation back, never have secure borders, never had blessing. Their only hope is Messiah. Now, here's why that is. Because Israel never had a great army. But they had a great God. And so they grabbed on to these prophecies that God's power, God's anointing, would someday rest in a ruler. And even though they were like a tumbleweed being blown around by all these powerful empires, if the power of Yahweh rests upon a ruler, a leader, an anointed one, who can stand against our God? No one. Here's where I'm going with this. I want to summarize the Jewish perspective on Messiah in two phrases. Messiah was their true king. Messiah was their only hope. He was it. Now, they had a king, Herod. He was an imposter. He wasn't from the correct lineage. Like, he wasn't even descended from Jacob. He was descended from Esau. He wasn't even truly Jewish. Yet he had a claim because he was sort of a puppet of the mighty emperor Tiberius, the Roman emperor. He had a claim on this kingdom. He called himself king, but he was an imposter. Peter's saying, Jesus, you're the true king. Not only are you our true king, you're our only hope. 
Like, honestly, the, the only hope that, that Israel had ever was going to be Messiah, y'all. I mean, th- them trying to stand up to the Roman Empire without, without God's power, without anointing on, on, a, on a leader, would, would, would be like a, a, a peewee football team taking on the New England Patriots. Like, it, like for real, like, it's just not going to happen. Like, you, Bill, Belich- Bill Belichick's not going to say, like, who's boss? Like, he's just going to crush him. That's what's going on here. Their only hope was God to intervene through this Messiah. So here's what Peter's saying. You're the one, and now's the time. You see how dangerous that was? Like, now do you see verse 30? Jesus warns them not to tell anyone yet. Jesus knows as soon as this word gets out, the clock is ticking before he's going to be on that cross. And he knows that the cross is part of his plan, but he also knows there's a specific moment when that cross is part of the plan. And he still has more teaching to do. He's got to get this, this, this rabble group of, of disciples in a little bit better place, right, before he leaves them. So he's saying, don't tell anyone. Now, I'm going to summarize all that I've said, and I hope you're tracking with me through all this political, historical stuff. You'll see why it's important in a minute. Here's the summary. The Jews were a tiny people group with a weak imposter king And their land was occupied by the most powerful empire in history who had them under its thumb. So Peter saying, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, meant you're our true king and you're our only hope. Now, here's the irony in this. Peter was exactly right, but he also had it wrong. And Peter had these conceptions that the political military stuff comes first. And what Jesus is going to say next week in our text, he's going to start explaining Messiah is going to have to suffer. Messiah is going to die. And Peter's going to stand in Jesus' way. And I don't want to give next week's text away. We'll get to it. It's a great text. And Peter's going to say, hey, that's not going to happen. That can't be Messiah. You see, Peter had the right answer, but he still didn't understand what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah. And so we have a shift in Mark's gospel. One through eight is all around the question, who is Jesus? It gets answered in eight, verse 29. And from eight, verse 30, all the way through the end of the gospel of Mark, which is, by the way, another eight chapters. This is the halfway point. The question shifts. It's no longer who is Jesus. It's what kind of Messiah is Jesus? What kind of Christ? What kind of king? What kind of hope? So this is where we're going to be going in our journey. Okay, so what? So what? Now, dude, I'm doing great on time, all right? I I had to cut some stuff from the first service because the so what normally, which normally takes 30 seconds, it's going to take all the time that we have. So if you think, man, he's already at the so what, we're getting out of here early. (laughs) Not so fast, my friend. But it's going to be worth it. I hope it's going to be worth it, I hope. So here's where we're going to go with the so what. Now, I mentioned earlier, the application's obvious. The question's not just for them. The question's for us. Who do you say I am? But here's where I want to go with it. It's too easy for us to say, Jesus is the Messiah. It's too easy for us to say, Jesus is the Christ. In fact, you probably used that name in vain at some point in time in the last month or two, right? It's too easy for us to move our lips, but our hearts to be far from him. You've got to ask yourself the question, what does it actually mean if I'm going to say this man was this Messiah? What does it mean to me? I came across this quote by Alan Cole, You wouldn't know that name. He's a Bible commentator. In one of the commentaries that I read this week, here's what he said. He gets to this question. I love this quote. He says, 
Here is the personal question that transfers theology from an armchair discussion to an uncomfortable dialogue between God and us. I'm going to read that phrase again. It transfers theology, which is like all up here, right? From an armchair discussion, you know, smoking a pipe. It's, oh, Jesus, Messiah, what does this mean? And Hebrew and king and all these kinds of things. To an uncomfortable dialogue between you and God that you've got to have. And the uncomfortable dialogue goes something like this. Jesus would ask you, who do you say that I am? And you say, I, I learned this in Sunday school. You're the Messiah. Jesus might say, what does that mean? And what does that mean to you? Well, you might say, it means that I've put my trust in you so that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Yes, yes. But what does it mean for you to put your trust in me? Uh, it means I believe that you died on the cross. and Yes. What is that to you? You see where this uncomfortable dialogue between you and God goes, and he sees right through you. He sees through your religious charades. He sees through you going through the motions. He sees right through you. And out of love, y'all, compassion, tenderness, he would look at you and say, who do you say that I am? So I want to help you. I want to give you some guidance and direction of how you might think of this, but I can't do the work for you. This is your question. By the way, I love the fact that this question was preserved in the Scripture. The Holy Spirit was good to give this to us. Because what this means is, it's a question that Jesus asked not just the twelve, but every other human being throughout history. This is the question. The question. Some of y'all are thinking that's hyperbole. You know, isn't the question, what's the meaning of life? That's tied up in this question. Isn't the question, how did we get here? That's tied up in this question. Isn't the question, like, you know, what, what does it mean to love? You know, what is love? That's tied up in this question. This is the question Jesus asks every person through this text. And you have no excuse this morning because you're here. And you're, the question's being asked by the Spirit of God through this passage. Who do you say that I Am. Now, here's where I want to go, and i, I got to pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, have you noticed the last couple miracles that we've been studying have been really messy? Like they've involved spit and gross, kind of like weird, you know? Uh, two weeks ago, Lloyd was teaching. I was sitting, you know, right there near Vanessa, and my daughters were with me, and he was talking about Jesus, like, you know, spitting and then, you know, touching this guy and his tongue and this kind of thing. And, and my middle daughter, Elisa, who's nine, she was just like, had this disgust look on her face the whole time. And, and I was a little bit uncomfortable with that. I wanted to sort of gloss over it and say, well, you know, it was just sort of the custom back then, and, you know, wouldn't have grossed that guy out. And I thought about it later, and I was like, I don't know. Like, maybe it's designed to be uncomfortable. And then Michael, last week, talked about the healing of this blind man. And like Jesus, uh, uh, yeah, the, the blind uh, person. And again, Jesus is using spit, right? So there was, okay, two weeks ago, it was the deaf man. And then last week, it was the blind man. Both times, he's like spitting and like touching their tongue and putting his fingers in their ears and like doing all these really gross things. And so here's what I started thinking about. Could it be that there's a reason for this? In other words, Jesus could have healed them from a distance, and he didn't. And so this, this is what I thought of this week, and you'll see how this applies. I, I think what Jesus may be showing his disciples and us through this text 
is that for God to open your ears and open your eyes, it's got to get personal. It's got to get messy. It's got to be intimate. So you think about any time in your life where God's actually done a work in you, where you know, you're struggling in some area with you know, a, 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 a habit or a hang-up or an addiction or a relationship, and, and God did some real work in you, and you just kind of, something broke loose. It was messy, wasn't it? It was intimate. It was personal. This is what happens when Jesus touches us. And so you start thinking, what does it mean for me to answer this question? Who do you say that I am? It's going to get personal. You can't depend on Peter's answer and just say, oh, you know, Peter's answer. No, what's your answer? What's it going to be personal for you, intimate for you, maybe even messy for you? You can't just say, you know, Jesus and the people out there from a theological perspective. It's got to be about Jesus and you in this answer. Now, here we go. Who do you say that he is? Peter got the right answer. He is the Messiah. But what does that actually mean? I told you what it meant for the Jewish context. It meant that he was their true king and he was their only hope. Funny. It means the same thing for us. It means that he's our true king and it means that he's our only hope. You know what I realized in the text this week that I'd never seen before? The military, historical, political situation that the Hebrew people found themselves in when Jesus showed up on the scene is exactly analogous to every single one of our spiritual situation without Christ, without Messiah. We have no hope. We have no true king. It would be just as easy for that peewee team to beat the New England Patriots as it would be for you and me to be righteous apart from Christ, for you and me to get to God apart from Christ. Could it be that God chose this moment in time where there's no hope for the Hebrew people and he shows up to point us there's a bigger reality out there. It's not just political and historical. It's spiritual. You are being dominated by an evil empire whether you see it or not. And you know what else is true as I thought about this more? I said, you know what? The Hebrew people weren't the only ones that had an imposter king on the throne. I have an imposter king on my throne of my heart. You have an imposter king on the throne of your heart. Who is it? Who is it? You, John, and Rob, and Sarah, and Jennifer. It's us. We have an imposter king. Now, I want to explain what I mean by this. What is sin, really, when you think about it? Isn't sin a choice to live apart independently from God? And it may not seem like full-on rebellion. It just seems like, oh, I'm just trying to have fun. I'm trying to enjoy my life. or I'm just trying to be comfortable, whatever it is. But isn't sin actually saying, God, you have a design for me, and I, I say thank you very much for that, but I'm going to live over here. Think about it this way. You were designed as a human being to live in dependence upon God. As in, he is your life source. As in, think about a lamp that only works when it's plugged into the power. 
You can unplug that lamp and you can maybe decorate it somewhere over here, but it's actually not fulfilling its true purpose. There's no glory, there's no brightness, there's no light shining through that lamp. That is us because of sin. Like, we have separated ourselves from the power source. And it's no wonder why we walk around thinking, I don't know if my life means anything, or I'm struggling, and I'm lonely, and I have all these struggles. It's because you're separated from the power source. Like, you're unplugged. You see, this is the human condition after the fall. And every one of us is born into this, and every one of us lives in it. And we contribute to it. We choose independence over dependence. What we're essentially doing is we're placing an imposter king ourselves on this throne. And he doesn't belong there. But, but what is our hope? Because we're designed to have a king. Like God designed us to, to need a king. And, and how can we take this king off the throne of our hearts without putting another king on there, without the true king being on here? You start to see Jesus is your true king and Jesus is your only hope. Now, the problem with living independently from God is it always leads to self-sabotage. It always leads to harm. You get yourself in all kinds of, of situations where you're starving for life and, and you're, you're beating yourself up and, and you're beating other people up. And, and so Jesus comes and he starts restoring things that were broken. And he says, but listen, you're never going to have true peace until you recognize who the true king is. And here Peter proclaims it. You are the true king. You are the true king. And it was true for them politically, although it still is yet to be lived out politically. That's still to come but it's true for every person spiritually. And that's the one that matters more. He is your true king. He is your only hope. Now, we know where the story's going. This is what Peter didn't know. We know that Messiah meant, at least at his first coming, that he had to conquer the true enemy, which wasn't Rome. The true enemy is death. The true enemy is Satan. The true enemy is the occupying force that was, you can use the Rome analogy, but it's actually the deceiver. It's actually the father of lies, the usurper, if it will. And before the borders can be secure... Before the people of God can once more dwell with God, as he always intended, Jesus has to defeat the enemy. That's what the cross is about. That's what the resurrection is about. And finally, for the disciples, you know, after he ra he's raised again, the, the penny's going to drop, and then they're going to go along proclaiming him as Messiah, but in the right context. And this kingdom is not of this world yet. <laughs> Right? So this is what's going to happen in the gospel, you know, all throughout, all throughout Acts and the, the epistles that follow. This is this proclamation. He is the Christ, but here's what this means for you. And here's what this means not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for the whole earth. Because all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise God. Now, one more point. What does it look like for you to confess Jesus is Messiah. Tim mentioned this earlier in one of his prayers. He said, confession is naming what is true. Now, when, when you imagine if you're in a courtroom and you're going to make a confession, right? You, you take an oath and then you're going to speak what you believe is true. 
we use that word a lot in the spiritual context when we confess our sins. What are we doing when we confess our sins? We're just naming what is true. God, I've missed the mark. Confession is naming what you believe to be true. So if you're going to say Jesus is Messiah, you need to understand what you mean by that is Jesus is my true king and Jesus is my only hope. That's what Messiah is. Now, I, I just want to give you a visual illustration because uh, it can be possible to proclaim with your lips and your heart to be far from him. Remember that? That was a text we studied a few weeks ago. Jesus says, this is what's happening. You're proclaiming me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So there has to be a way that you can actually believe substantively what you say, what you speak, what you proclaim. So let me give you this illustration. Where is Brent Burns? There's Brent Burns. Okay, just stand on your feet, Brent, if you would. Okay, Brent, I'm going to ask you a question here. You've been sitting on that chair now for an hour or so. Do you believe that that chair could hold your weight if you were to stand on the chair? Do you believe that? Uh, yes. All right. Brent's proclaimed with his lips. Now I'm going to ask you to stand on the chair. <laughs> now... Stay right there. I'm going to ask you to stay there for a few minutes, so get comfortable. <laughs> what happened when Brent stepped from the floor to the chair was he shifted his weight, right? He shifted his trust. It's easy to trust the floor, right? Unless there's an earthquake, you know you're pretty, pretty, you're pretty good. But to put your weight on that chair actually takes some trust. That's what happens when you become a believer in Christ, a follower in Christ. It's not just the lip service of coming to church and, and saying, hey, he's my savior and all these kinds of things. Yes, that's all it takes is a proclamation as long as you actually mean it and you're shifting your trust from the weight shifts from the floor, whatever it is you're putting your hope in, whatever it is you're putting your trust in, your own righteousness, your goodness, your family background, uh, the, the fact that you haven't done too many really bad sins, whatever it is that you think makes you okay, you're shifting the trust from all of that to standing on the chair, which is Jesus Christ. Now keep standing. Yeah, yeah. Keep standing. John, I'm coming at you, brother. Do you believe that this chair would hold your weight? Would you stand on that chair? Who else can I pick on? Who else can I pick on? Who else? We have any volunteers? We had a volunteer in the first service. Come on, this is your chance. Proclaim what is true. Yes, stand on the chair. Shift your weight from the floor to the chair. And I'll let her be the last one. All right, I want you to... I'm praying for you. <laughs> this is how you got saved 30 years ago. With All right, well, you're just taking it to another level. Now, y'all just stay. I'm not going to keep you up here forever. It's a little wobbly. I want you just to look around, and I want you to realize this is what it looks like to answer the question, who do you say that I am? This is what it looks like to shift your trust from anything else, you know, religious ideas, good works, there's nothing else that can support you. He is your true king. He is your only hope. So when you say, you are the Messiah, what you mean is, Jesus, you're my true king. I surrender control, as scary as that is for me. And Jesus, you're my only hope. If you don't get me home, I'm not getting home. And so this morning, we want to give you a chance to proclaim it. Maybe some of you for the first time, maybe many of you for the hundredth time.
Proclaim it and mean it. And you don't have to stand on a chair. We're not going to get you to do it. But I would invite you all to stand, if you would. And the three of you can, sit, can stand on the floor now. Thank you. Every, everyone stand up. Here's what we're going to do. The band's coming back on stage. We're going to proclaim corporately as a body through a song. All right, now, listen, because confession is by nature verbal, like, I don't know how you confess or proclaim something to be true if you don't speak it or write it. We've got a song that's going to allow you to do that, and it's going to be corporately, but I don't want you just to get lost in the the beautiful singing all around you. I I want you not to just move your lips, but, but I want you to proclaim, if this is what you believe to be true about Jesus, that he is your true king, that he is your only hope, you have a chance, along with this body, this family of faith, this community of faith, to proclaim it. Some of you will literally be proclaiming it for real for the first time, and you'll be shifting your trust, and your eternity will be changed in this moment. Praise God. Many of the others of us will be going back to what it is we believe, who it is that we're calling Messiah. Bow your heads with me, and then we'll sing. Our Father... You are not only a good God, you're a true God. You're a real God. You're the God that has created us, the reason that we're here, and you sent your Son to be our Messiah, to be our King, to be our hope. And so, Father, with as much faith as you're able to bless us with this morning, we proclaim the true identity of our Savior Jesus Christ. May we do this with our voices. May we do this with our hearts. May we do this with our minds, even with our bodies as we just engage you with our vocal cords. And we thank you for loving us and we thank you for sending this Messiah. In his name we pray, amen.